last time you went to the pub, how much did you pay for a pint? Did it feel too much? And if so, what did you do about it? You're listening to Consume This with me, Sophie Stewart, me Richardson. Yep, that's right, Callum and I got married, got old, hit your rude. It was a good time. On this episode, we're celebrating the power of you. You, the consumer. New Zealand consumer action long predates the establishment of Consumer NZ. Its beginnings can be traced back to 1947 and the Greymouth Beer Boycott. It was arguably the first major consumer action in our history. A whole town coming together to fight the system. So what happened? Well, in 1947, Greymouth had 21 pubs and a population of around 9,000 people. That's about one pub for every 420-ish people. That includes women and children who didn't tend to frequent pubs. So basically what I'm saying is there are a lot of pubs. That should have led to fierce competition for consumer dollars. If one pub is too expensive, well, there are 20 others to choose from. But the landlords all got together and essentially formed a cartel to raise the price of beer. This ultimately led to one of the most effective consumer boycotts ever seen in New Zealand. In the 1940s, public hotels were legally supposed to close at 6pm, but these hours were only nominally obeyed on the West Coast where ignoring the rules was part of the frontier tradition. Insert Wild West music, Tom. Thanks. To avoid profiteering and focus energy on the war effort, the government had introduced a range of price controls in 1939. This applied to everything from eggs to houses, and prices could only be increased by application to a price stabilisation authority. As the war ended, the government faced problems. How were they going to remove the price controls without causing massive inflation? As we entered a new era of prosperity, businesses began demanding price rises. In 1940, the price of a 10-ounce beer was set at 6 pence. That's about $2.90 in today's money. Bloody bargain as far as I'm concerned. Two years later, the price was raised to 7 pence. Initially, this price rise wasn't implemented on the West Coast. And I'm just speculating here, but probably because hotel keepers feared protests from the drinkers. A fair concern, as it turned out. But fast forward five years, and Greymouth's hotel keepers wanted to bring their prices in line with the rest of the country. Rumours began to spread that the price of beer was going to rise, but no publican wanted to take the decision alone. After all, Customers would just go to another hotel where prices were lower. To solve this problem, the Licensed Victitulars Association, or basically the publicans, got together on the 29th of September 1947 and announced that the price of beer would increase immediately from sixpence to sevenpence in all West Coast hotels. Publicans knew it wouldn't be popular, but they didn't expect organised resistance. Pitchforks in the street. But for the people of the West Coast, beer was an emotive issue. The working men demanded that their unions take immediate action. The West Coast Trades Council rallied their members and held a public meeting. This meeting of the Trades Council and officers of the local trade unions recommends to all workers that if the price of beer is increased, they boycott hotels from the date of such increase. This decision being based on record profits being made by breweries 
thus indicating that an increase in the price of beer is not warranted. There was scepticism about the boycott, but just days later, on the 2nd of October, the Greymouth Evening Star reported... Plate after plate of food, counter lunches barely touched, providing ample testimony to the apparent effectiveness of the boycott. A tour of Greymouth hotels about five o'clock yesterday afternoon made it obvious that so far the boycott has at least been fairly successful in reducing custom. Publicans tried to maintain a united front, but Paddy Keating of the Central Hotel in Greymouth kept his prices at six pence. Business boomed and he had crowds spilling into the street. The Central Hotel quickly ran out of beer before a local citizen stepped in and gave them a 36-gallon keg to tide them over. What a good bloke. This standoff lasted four and a half months before hotel owners finally caved. On February the 5th, 1948, the LVA issued a statement saying that the pubs could choose to sell beer for six pence or seven pence, and by the 13th, the Greymouth Star reported that all beer was being sold for six pence. So, my consume this co-host, John Duffy. Hello. You've been known to enjoy a pint or two. Next time you're out at the pub, you're going to be protesting the price? Because I think we should do. I mean, like, $17 for a beer is getting ridiculous. Yeah, beer is super expensive in pubs these days. But you have to believe that you're being charged a fair and reasonable price. And um, Nonsense. I want a $2.90 beer. <laughs> you want a $2.90 beer. Well, that may not be great beer. But, you know, this uh, the example that you raised is a really cool and interesting example of consumer power in Aotearoa. And as we know, it didn't stop there, I mean. Yeah. Hot on the heels of the beer boycotts, the 1950s saw post-war austerity replaced by a prosperous new era of consumption. What we now think of as the modern consumer was born. But as we increasingly identified ourselves in relation to the clothes we wore, and the products that filled our homes, a sense of unease grew about the brave new world of consumerism. Following the scarcity of the 1930s and 40s, we had more goods available at the grocery store and at the high street, but concerns emerged that rising levels of affluence and more sophisticated marketing made us vulnerable to being ripped off for bad products we didn't need. There were also safety concerns about some of these new products. Well, from our experience at Consumer NZ, these concerns haven't really gone away. We still spend loads of time thinking about dodgy marketing, things like greenwashing, and unsafe products. Yeah, and these concerns weren't restricted to Aotearoa, right? Following in the footsteps of the US, the UK, and Scandinavia, Prime Minister Walter Nash launched the Consumer Service in September 1959. And as you might have guessed, or you probably already knew, given that you're the chief executive, that service is what eventually grew into Consumer NZ. So in a way, we actually have Walter Nash to thank for this podcast. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> how did we get from there to sitting here right now? Well, straight off the bat, the service was a huge success. It tapped into the rebellious frontier spirit we mentioned before. Before the Consumer Service had even been officially opened, 50 letters had been received the topics included concerns over hair and weight loss products. I mean, you know, I think you're probably still getting some of those letters, John. The need for better information on insurance policies, again, still getting those letters. 
and the high processed grocery. Um, we are still getting those letters. Yeah. Um, oh, we're definitely getting them on insurance and the high price of groceries and actually weight loss products. Yes. So six months after it opened, the consumer service had over 3,000 members. It reached the 10,000 mark in under a year. In 1963, the Consumer Service became the Consumers Institute with membership of 43,000. In 1986, the government withdrew its support, with funding drying up in 1989. Boo. Well, that's right. And even though that was sad, it is when we became an incorporated society funded by our members. Like you. Yeah. So what we lost in income... We gained an independence, and that's an independence we've retained to this day. Okay, so John, as well as being my co-host, you are the Consumer NZ CEO. So real top line for any new listeners out there, what does Consumer NZ actually do? Well, I've thought about this a lot um, because, you know, there's all these people that turn up to work and I kind of look at them beavering away and I'm like, what is that person doing? (laughs) I think at its essence – We're problem solvers. So we identify problems, we undertake some form of research, and then we provide advice on solving that problem. Mm. And that, you know, it's it's obviously way more nuanced than that. But, you know, right at its heart, that's it. Well, how do you go about doing that then? Well, it, it all depends on what we're dealing with. So consumers got just under 50 staff with a really broad range of skills. There's designers, there's IT specialists, to journalists and lawyers. So we've got a few different levers to pull. And let's, of course, not forget podcast producers. Yeah, They're really important and underappreciated. Hey, Tom? Yeah, thanks, Tom. So a good example of the kind of variety of the work we get involved in is PowerSwitch. So in 1999... We knew that too many people were paying too much for their electricity. Better offers were available, but switching was too much of a hassle. We started PowerSwitch with support from the government and the industry were involved and Consumer NZ members. And the service helps you work out which power company and price plan is best for you. We've only got records back to about 2012, but PowerSwitch manager Paul Fuge estimates that we've saved consumers around $20 million on their power bills in that time. Wow. That is enough to buy everyone in New Zealand two 1947-style beers with some change left over. But only two today beers. Yeah, $10 million each (laughs) at a Wellington pub. Yeah, that's right. So I guess that's one thing when the market is working slightly inefficiently, but another when businesses are actively working against their customers. Yeah, that's true, but it's not always possible to work with business. Sometimes business doesn't like us, and so (laughs) sometimes we we need to apply a bit more pressure. And how do you go about that? Thumbscrews? (laughs) Well, well, there's a couple of ways we can do this. And don't forget, we're an NGO. We don't have any regulatory powers or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. a lot of our strength comes from the trust in our brand and our ability to convince people to do the right thing right so mm. one way we do that is to create as much noise as we can around an issue in the hopes that businesses do the right thing or the government steps in and forces them to mm. and we've been quite successful in campaigning for change across our history a good example is you know from 1956 to 1965 higher purchase consumer debt trebled as you know this 
new era of consumption that we talked about earlier mm. really kicked in and people wanted more and bigger and used higher purchase to buy these big ticket items. Yeah. And that really left consumers who weren't really used to managing their, their finances in this way vulnerable to financial pressures. Especially so, when a microwave was $1,000. Yeah, that's right. So we campaigned over the next eight years until Parliament came to the party and passed the Higher Purchase Act, which has now been, you know, modern times incorporated into the triple CFA. Nice. Similarly, um, after a five-year campaign by the Consumers Institute, the government brought in the Small Claims Tribunal in 1977, which is now what we know as the Disputes Tribunal. Mm. In 1991, we called for a Privacy Act, of all things. Yay! (laughs) uh, To protect people's (laughs) personal information. And and as you well know, Sophie, the Privacy Act 1993 arrived two years later. Yes. And now we have the Privacy Act 2020. And sometimes we need to take the law into our own hands. Oh, the thumbscrews are coming out. Yeah. And I guess a good example of that is our work in the sunscreen space. So in 2018, only four of the 19 sunscreens in our annual test met their SPF claims. And, yeah, which is, oh, well, I've, we've got a whole podcast on this particular issue. It is yes. one that is close to my heart as a beautiful ginger man. But <laughs> over the course of our campaign, several businesses have been They've been fined for making false claims about the SPF level of their products. In 2021, the owner of a testing laboratory in the United States was jailed after a, an FBI investigation for, mm. for falsifying lab reports. And one of our articles, actually, from Consumer, Little Old Consumer NZ was entered in evidence by the FBI prosecutors in that case, which is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. But pretty dodgy that it happened in the first place. Yeah. Kind of a dodgy call. Do- yeah, definitely dodgy call. So, you know, when all that's said and done, for all of the work Consumer NZ does, we are entirely reliant on the activism that's inherent to Kiwi consumers. We love a complain. Well, we actually do love a complain. That's right, because (laughs) complaining is how change starts. Mm. And, you know, let's be completely honest, consumers don't necessarily need us to get their point across, but we provide focus, and, and that's a really important part of engendering change as well. Yeah, that's quite right, John. We've seen that recently and consumers don't always need Consumer and Z to make their point known. Um, yeah, consumers can do just fine on their own when they see something they're not happy with. Mm. If DB breweries had done their research, they might have known better than to mess with beer in the residents of New Zealand's West Coast. You, you might recall this in 20... Actually, you're really young. In 2001? Yeah. I mean, I was here. They tried to close down the Monteith's Brewery, moving production from Greymouth to Auckland. I was 11, John. God. Yeah. West Coast Coast Tasman MP Damien O'Connor labelled Monteith's parent company DB, and I quote, dumb bastards, (laughs) and 14 people were made redundant. That decision lasted four days before the company bowed to public pressure and reopened the brewery in Greymouth. Did you see what he did there, Soph? No. DB. DB. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Dumb bastards. Nice. Nice. And Kiwi consumer activists, they start young as well. So, And this is one, I have to say, that is very close to my heart. In 2004, two Auckland schoolgirls, Anna and Jenny, conducted a school science experiment and discovered there was almost no vitamin C at all in ready-to-drink Ribena, despite claims made on on the package. GlaxoSmithKline, which manufactures Ribena, was prosecuted by the Commerce Commission and fined 
$227,000 in order to make uh, a nationwide campaign of corrective advertising in newspapers. Now, I have a particular soft spot for this case because I was the lead investigator on the complaint when I worked at the Commerce Commission all of those years ago. And the thing that stands out for me from this one was the sense of betrayal that people felt that this iconic brand, Ribena, that people had grown up with, you know, Mm. it's like this war brand from England and New Zealanders had grown up having this shoveled down their throats, even though it was so high in sugar (laughs) by their parents. (laughs) And suddenly the one good bit about it, the vitamin C content, despite the high sugar content was missing and people just felt ripped off. So that was a real eye opener for me, that case. I definitely felt that because my dad used to buy me a Ribena after school every day, a sparkling Ribena, which I still have a soft spot for, to be fair, despite the lack of vitamin C. (laughs) Um, But it was delicious. So we've kind of touched on a bit, John, that, you know, you can't do the work that you do without members and also consumers generally getting behind campaigns and pushing for change. How do you harness all of this consumer power that you've got access to? There's lots of ways we can do it, but a really obvious example is using the power of petitions, right? So petitions are something that politicians really pay attention to. So if you can get lots of people uh, united behind an issue and get them to sign a petition, there can be really impactful change resulting from that. So if I think about some of our our work in in the last wee while, we launched a petition in May last year for the government to go beyond the recommendations made by the Commerce Commission's Grocery Market Study, and 78,000 New Zealanders signed the petition. And as a result, the government announced that, yes, it was going to go beyond the recommendations in that market study and make further interventions to help improve competition, which is sorely needed in that sector. So, sure, Consumer NZ focused, you know, the laser, but (laughs) the energy came from consumers signing up to that petition and, and giving it momentum. So that's super cool. I'm super proud of the people who got in behind that and the work we did at Consumer around that issue. So, I mean, that's really awesome that people can get behind these sorts of movements and act collectively. Is there any other ways that people can get involved beyond just signing a petition? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's lots of work that we do that involves input from consumers. So it could be as simple as providing us information on an appliance that broke down so that we can add that into our appliance reliability information. You could answer a survey or or even provide us feedback on on other types of things. So there's lots of ways that you can interact with us. But I guess the best way is for people to get in the club. So become a supporter or if you're able to become a paying member and that helps us keep the lights on and do more stuff to help make life better for consumers. Yeah. Yeah. The power of the 175-odd thousand supporters that we have is that it's not just our staff out there in the supermarkets, in the retail shops, you know, on websites looking at buying things. It's the wider community that's out there being our ears and eyes, and and we really appreciate hearing from that community. It really amplifies our ability to to make change. Well, that was a really great summary of... Consumer NZ sort of current state, John, what does the future hold? What does that look like for consumer and consumer activism in New Zealand? Well, I think as far as consumer activism goes, it's part of the Kiwi psyche to hold businesses to account. Mm. But 
it's getting trickier, right? It's getting murkier. And, and often we see examples where we've been able to uncover activity that actually consumers can't detect under their own steam. They need mm-hmm. people who are looking into these issues to highlight them to them. So I think that will continue to be a really big part of what we do. Yeah, sunscreens are a really great example of that, right? Like yeah. I, how could I test a sunscreen in my own? Like I'd have to set up a, a lab. Exactly, you know, yeah. and it was even difficult for us. Like we had to crowdfund to support our testing of those products because it's super expensive. So your average consumer is not going to be able to send those products off to labs in France and Germany to get tested, right? So, you know, at, at its core, we'll continue to keep trying to help consumers get a fair deal. And we've kind of, I guess over the last couple of years, we've refined that down to some core focus areas, which mm. reflect what consumers are telling us in terms of what they're concerned about. So it won't be a surprise to you that the top of the list at the moment is the cost of living crisis. Mm. And that's as simple as the affordability of what's on sale at the supermarket. So all of the campaign work that we've and we've talked about it already in this podcast, but all the campaign we're doing in the supermarket space, yeah, that's not to pick on the supermarkets, that's to help people afford to put food on the table, right? Yeah. If we I can mean, get, it, they're if, just the best representation of that at the moment, right? Like that's where people are feeling it as at the grocery checkout because they're like, if I can't afford to feed my family, then what else am I having to give up? Like to make do, I guess. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I mean, I guess in the electricity sector is, is similar, right? Mm. You know, we, we hear these heartbreaking stories from, you know, our network's budget advisors in the Salvation Army and places like that where people are, are having what are called heat and eat decisions, right? Mm. What are we going to do this tonight or the, this week? Are we going to put food on the table or are we going to have a warm house? And we can't do both. So what are we, you know, what's our choice? Now that's in a first world nation that is, it's not acceptable that people are facing those pressures you know, we see a range of options for fixing those, but competition, better market structures uh, are one of those one of those solutions, and, and that's why we've been relentless in our efforts, particularly in the supermarket space, to improve the structure of the market. And we're not there yet, so um, we won't be shutting that one down until we see positive results. Yeah, and I guess the electricity point is also related to one of the other areas of focus, which would be housing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, housing fairness is kind of it's so central to so much that goes on in, in our economy because, you know, our housing stock is also a core investment for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. M- much of our wealth is tied up in housing. And, you know, we've been told for, for many, many years, hey, the best, the best investment you can possibly make is to try and get on the housing ladder and then buy more houses, right? Mm-hmm. So in some cases, people who aren't equipped to be landlords are being landlords, which has an impact on the quality of life for tenants. On the other hand, there are people who are fantastic landlords and, and really want to take care of both their tenants and their properties, but it shouldn't be the luck of the draw which of those two mm. uh, extremes that you get, right? There, We need better laws to protect tenants yeah. who are squeezed in the middle. And we've had the Human Rights Commissioner come out and say that housing is a human right. So, And so it should be. You know, mm. we, I find it problematic that we're viewing housing investment as an investment rather than an obligation to provide a healthy home for someone. Mm. Um, and, and that's not to criticise all landlords because I know there are people out there who take it really seriously and do a great job, but there are also some that don't. And the stats that come out of, of MB and other places really show that there's a lot of work to be done um, to, to get our housing stock, even just compliant with existing laws. Yeah. And like to get that sort of healthy home, as you said, it's about a warm, dry mold-free place to live, which, you know, many Wellington flats don't quite make that mark. 
and that leads into sort of health problems, right? You know, we see more asthma and um, people who rent and have cold, damp houses and worse health outcomes for people who aren't living in, in healthy homes. So Yeah, that's right. So we another one of our core focus areas is health and wellbeing. And, and yeah, housing is a huge part of that, right? It's kind of the core of, of so much of what we do. But, but that also expands out into the work we do in the sunscreen space, for example, or our campaign to see direct-to-consumer drug advertising prohibited in New Zealand. You know, I find it absolutely bewildering that we are – one of two countries, the other country being the United States, that still allows large pharmaceuticals to advertise directly to consumers. So mm-hmm. those consumers turn up to their GP and say, no, I want X product because I've self-diagnosed that this is my problem and <laughs> I want you to give that to me. And the GPs sit there pulling their hair out going, no, I'm the professional. <laughs> Here's my diagnosis. You actually need this other product or no product at all. Mm-hmm. Yet we're allowing the, the pharmaceutical industry to continue to advertise directly to our people. Another of our five kind of core areas is data and privacy. And I know this is probably one that's close to your heart. Sure is. So, but I mean, we know that this is a rapidly changing area. We know that we probably don't have the strongest privacy protection laws in New Zealand, particularly the idea that you can breach the Privacy Act and not be guilty of an offence. I find that really out of step with other Mm. jurisdictions. We're seeing behaviour in larger sectors, the supermarkets included, where biometric technology is being rolled out, rolled back uh, once we called it out and then potentially rolled out again. Again, We're not really sure. But, you know, using facial recognition technology to clock Mm. you as you go into the supermarket and then compare your image with an image of, undesirables that are unwanted in that store potentially dispatching a security guard to take yeah deal with you take action against you know that's Mm. that's all perfectly legal under our existing privacy legislation but most people probably be pretty surprised to find out that's going on and that becomes a disclosure issue right how how are we telling our populace that this technology is out there in the wild being and what are the implications of it and like also, and you know, what are the implications of a data breach if they're collecting your biometrics? What are they doing with them? How are they storing them? Where are they keeping them? You know, how are they keeping them safe? All of those things. I mean, I've been victim of a data breach recently. It's led to a huge amount of scam calls come as a result of it. And now also I'm having to protect my credit file because my credit information was put at, at risk. So I now have to proactively go and tell the credit reporting bureaus data was breached and I have to get my credit file suppressed and like all these things. And that's all on me. There's no easy system for me to do that. I also have to proactively make a complaint if I want to, to the privacy commissioner, even though they're doing an inquiry into this particular data breach that I was involved in, there's actually no outcomes for individuals, consumers as a result of it. It's not like they now, okay, we've got a settlement of a million dollars and we'll divvy that up between X number of complainants or whatever. It's just, you know, oh, well, slap on the wrist don't do that again you naughty buggers so Um, it's just really uh, it's not helpful even for people who know their rights um, is what i'm saying yeah and there's just so many facets to it so you know we we are trying to break down some of the technical expertise that you need to even kind of exist in the modern marketplace Mm. to, to understand all of these things and make it simpler for people and help them through these types of issues yeah an example of like things getting more and more complicated right would be like the climate and greenwashing stuff that we're seeing in supermarkets where you know, you might have an eco label on something, but does that actually mean that it's more eco friendly? Yeah, look at, and it's not just supermarkets; it's it's across the marketplace, right? And we see this from our consumer sentiment tracker data. People, 
particularly post Cyclone Gabriel and the rain events in Auckland and Northland, people have increased concern about the impacts of climate change, right? And they want to make good purchasing decisions. They're spending money with uh, retailers and manufacturers. That money has power, right? So mm-hmm. they want to make sure that it's going to the right type of choices. So they're really vulnerable to claims that may not be able to be substantiated about how sustainable a product might be. So there's a huge amount of work to do. And and to be frank, our regulators are overwhelmed. There is so much of it going on out there that even with all the best will in the world, they wouldn't be able to keep up because it's so pervasive. So we, we really see room there for further regulation to actually level the playing field and make it clear to businesses, hey, these are the rules. These types of expressions are... Uh, or, or claims are prohibited. The Europeans have done something similar, and we, we're really strong advocates for that. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work that Consumer NZ's doing. How do you fund all of that? We have a, a mixed funding model, so we, we have members who subscribe to us, and that's a little bit under 50% of our revenue. Um, and then we get money in through various other things, particularly contracts with central government when they fund us to do a specific project. But yeah, you know, the bulk of the work, this extra work that we do comes out of subscriptions that our members pay to us to get access to our information. But also, you know, a lot of people just subscribe to support us because they believe in what we do. And, and you know, we, we wouldn't exist without those people. So if there's one thing people listening who aren't a consumer member could do, if they want to support all of this really important mahi that we're up to, subscribe. We'd really appreciate um, having you in the team. And actually, the bigger the team gets, the more members and supporters that we have, the more powerful and impactful we can be uh, when we're advocating on behalf of consumers. This episode of Consume This was written and researched by Rory O'Shea. It was produced by Tom Rees-Smith. It also featured the amazing voice talents of Nick Gelling and Phil Murdoch. Consume This is brought to you by Consumer NZ and made possible in part by the support of IL members. For more information about the huge benefits of membership, check out the Consumer NZ website. Thanks for joining us. Matewa. Matewa. Hello, I'm Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. Right now, literally, as we speak, we're working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can... Help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.